Uh, welcome. Appreciate you guys being here this morning. Uh, let me ask this question. Did y'all bring your Bibles? Yes. Uh, let me see them. You got them? Got them with you? Got the paper ones? Actual books? All right. If you don't have one, stop at the Start Here booth. They'll get you one. If you need one online, let us know. We'll mail you one. Uh, but if you've got a little smartphone, follow along with us there. All the, the notes stuff is on our app. Uh, I want to get into this this morning. Uh, here's the thing. The story of the Bible is the story of the kingdom of God. The story of this is the story of the kingdom of God. Let me be very clear. The kingdom of God is the overarching and integrating theme of the entire scripture, of all the Bible. The kingdom of God, we have to understand this, is both the overarching and the integrating theme of the Bible. And... The kingdom of God will challenge every other kingdom. We, we got to get this right. The Bible is the story of the kingdom of God. It was begun in the garden, fleshed out in the earth. Man, because of sin, fumbled the ball and the devil picked it up. And we've been playing defense ever since. And the goal... As Jesus taught us to pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as already exists in heaven. The whole story of the Bible is the story of the kingdom of God. It's manifestation in the world through Jesus and now through his church. And that kingdom will challenge every other kingdom. Every kingdom in your life, every kingdom in this world. And when I say the kingdom of this world, what I'm talking about is agenda. The kingdom of God will challenge every other agenda in our lives. Our problem is this. Though we were made for the kingdom of God and invited into the kingdom of God, and though the kingdom of God reigned in the garden, though we fumbled it after the garden and been playing defense ever since, here's the problem. We function, though we were made for the kingdom of God, we function naturally in the kingdom of this world. We function naturally and normally according to other agendas more than God's agenda. And so the kingdom of God feels foreign to us. Because we become so accustomed to the kingdom of this world and this world's agendas. Now, here's part of our problem. Our problem is this, that we try to live in both kingdoms according to both agendas. We try to live in both. Though we were made for the kingdom of God, we've grown up under the kingdom of this world. And so we straddle the fence. And we think, in this part of my life, I will abide by the kingdom of God in Sejuna. But in this part of my life, we have to, the kingdom of God is the overarching theme and integrating theme of the entire scripture. And we were made for that kingdom. But oftentimes we're more na we feel more naturally inclined to other kingdoms and agendas. Am I right? This is why so many people are in such tension in their life. This is why so many people who try, quote unquote, to be Christian are under such stress. This is why so many people who should be Living in freedom and liberation, as Jesus, John 10, 10 says, Jesus, I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. This is why so many people who should experience the fullness of Christ don't. Because they were made for that kingdom, we live with a foot in the other. And our passions and agendas, our intention and turmoil. And these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, and the kingdoms and agendas of this world are always in conflict. Always. 
And when you feel yourself at tension, it's because these two kingdoms are coming in conflict. God's invitation to us is to a relationship with him through faith in Jesus because of his grace. But that relationship with Jesus is inherently also an invitation into the kingdom of God. Not just for salvation in heaven, though it is certainly that, but because of that invitation into the kingdom of God right here, right now. And that kingdom will challenge every other kingdom and agenda in your life. And until we set that kingdom as the priority, we will always live in tension and turmoil and stress. Our relationships, every attempt at everything, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because though you claim Christ, you have lived with this tension year after year after year. See, my fear is this, that too many of us live lives looking forward to dying so we can get to heaven. You understand? Too many of us have succumbed to the idea that I'm going to make it through this life till I can die and finally get to heaven. And we miss the kingdom of God in our midst right now. Well, let me be clear. The kingdom of God will challenge, the capital K, kingdom of God, will challenge every other little K kingdom in your life. The good thing is this, that we get to choose in which kingdom, big K, or kingdom, little K, we get to live with and live in. We get to choose. So enter Mark 12. If you have a Bible, one form or another, Mark chapter 12. It's on the screen, it's on our app. What we'll see in Mark 12 is a kingdom of loyalties and a kingdom of laws and a kingdom of loves. And how Jesus redefines and prioritizes the kingdom of God over all other kingdoms. The overarching question in, throughout the ministry and the life of Jesus, the overarching question is, and this is a question we have to ask for our, of ourselves. Here's the overarching question. Whose kingdom has authority in my life? Whose kingdom has authority in my life? Every time we come up to a decision to make, we're making a decision between one of two kingdoms. Every decision, every choice is really the choice and the decision between one of two kingdoms. The question throughout Scripture, because the overarching theme and the integrating theme of all Scripture is the kingdom of God. The overarching question that all of us have to answer is this, whose kingdom has authority in my life right now? Before we make a decision, we have to solidify that. Whose kingdom? And am I making this decision based on my agenda and my kingdom or the kingdom and agenda of the culture or am I making this decision based on the kingdom of God? Because those will always be a conflict with each other. Do you understand? We get this? If I'm not clear enough, let me know. I will be even more clear. So let me set up Mark 12. Have y'all ever been in that situation 
when you were just attacked on all sides? Like everywhere you turn, somebody's coming after you. And you couldn't get away from it. It was unrelenting. The waves just keep coming and coming. The questions, the accusations, just coming and coming. Anybody ever been there? A couple of you? Well, this is Mark 12. This is what's going on with Jesus. Let me give you the context before the content. Here's the context. There were four prominent groups in the New Testament. The, Sadduc- uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes. Some religious, some political, some both. Four groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes. Each of those four groups were opposed to Jesus and had their own definition of the kingdom and the kingdom of God. And each one of those four groups expected loyalty to their agenda. The same exists today. In our world, in our culture, there are kingdoms that have been set up. There's authorities that have been set up. There's agendas of this culture and of our society that beg and plead and push for authority over our life. And in Mark 12, we see all four of these groups, each four of them, put unrelenting pressure on Jesus. And so let's look at them together. Starting in Mark 12, starting in verse 13. Here's these four groups and their unrelenting pressure put on Jesus for him to bow and to cower to their agenda according to their kingdom. Later, they sent some Pharisees and Herodians, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I mean, they're really buttering this, uh, Jesus up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're laying it, laying it on. You know when someone's laying it on thick, right? These guys, come on. Here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or should, should we pay our taxes? That's their question. Seems like a pretty innocuous question. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He see right through it. Hey, just because someone speaks honey in your ears doesn't mean they're your friend or an ally, right? Yeah, Jesus understood that. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, the smallest little denomination of, of, of currency. Bring me that little penny and let me look at it. They brought him a coin and he asked them, whose image is on this? And whose inscription? He said, what's the picture on that coin? Well, Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let me tell you what's going on. The kingdom of God will force us to clarify our loyalties. It'll force us to clarify our loyalties. We cannot write a fence in the kingdom of God. I want, I want to explain to you about this, these Pharisees and Herodians. They were two different groups, one religious that became political, one was political that included religious people. They were two different groups that were absolutely in opposition to each other. They disliked each other. The Pharisees held to a strict adherence to Old Testament law, and they made up a bunch of their own laws. You know how religious people are. You don't know how religious people are? 
They hated the overrulers of the Roman authority, the Roman government, they hated them. They were a religious group that became political. Now understand what they were. They were a religious group that became political. Some things have never changed even in 2021. They hated Rome, but they lobbied Rome for political gain. It was politics of the powerless. And they wanted a political kingdom for the nation of Israel. They wanted a political kingdom for the nation. That was the Pharisees. And then there were the Herodians. The Herodians were not loyal necessarily to the Old Testament law like the Pharisees. They were loyal to the Herodian dynasty. King Herod came on the throne. Remember the whole killing all of the babies when Jesus was born? He came to the throne and converted to Judaism. It wasn't, he wasn't fully Jew. So the Herodians were not a religious sect. They were a political sect that was loyal to the Herodian dynasty and wanted to see someone from the Herodian dynasty back on the throne as a political movement. The Herodians as a political movement had religious people in their movement of the Sadducees and the scribes. So these two groups were opposed to each other. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? You ever heard that phrase? So that's what's going on here. The Pharisees and Herodians were enemies with each other, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Both of them were enemies of Jesus. When people who don't like each other like each other more than they like you, you got enemies. And that's what these Pharisees and Herodians were. And so they come to Jesus as buttering them up. You, 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 you've been there. Someone greasing the skids because you know they want something from you. They're trying to manipulate you. It's going to set you up. They're blowing smoke up your whatever it is. You get smoke. Uh, and they come and say, teacher, you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by people. You pay no attention to who people are. You're above that. You teach the way of God according to the truth. See, what they're asking in this, in this question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? Should we pay it or not? What they're asking, they're asking the question of loyalty. Who are you going to be loyal to? Who do we have to be loyal to? See, they know if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, then he's saying be more loyal to Rome than you are the Jewish nation. But if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, then he simply is a man standing in stubborn opposition to Rome and as a lawbreaker. And I love the fact that Jesus refuses to play political nor religious games. Verse 15, what's he say? He says, bring me a little coin, a denarius. I love the fact that Jesus said, go, someone go get me a penny. I love that. It doesn't say Jesus reached into his wallet and pulled out a hundred dollar bill. He doesn't say, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say Jesus reached in his pocket and took out a wad of twenties. It doesn't even say Jesus reached in his pocket and pulled out a dollar bill. It doesn't even say Jesus to keep an extra coin in his sock and pulled that out. To, he says, go get me a dinner. I don't even go. I love the fact that Jesus wasn't one of those guys that was making royalties off all his speaking engagements and pamphlets and books that he made. You know what I'm saying? Like he wasn't one of these charlatans called a, a sneaker preacher. There, you, do you know there's sneaker preachers out there that spend $5,000 on sneakers so they can look good? Truly. It's ridiculous. He said, someone go get me a penny. 
And I love what his response is. Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what God's. He, what he's saying is this, honor the government when and as you can and give God his due. What he's saying too is this, but if you make me choose between Caesar or God, I will give to Caesar what I can as I can, and I will give to God what is God's. But if you make me choose between Caesar and God, I must obey God rather than man, because that is always the way of the kingdom. Throughout the third century of persecutions breaking out against God's church, the Christian uses... The Christians used the catacombs, not as regular places of worship all the time. They did that in their homes oftentimes. But they used the catacombs, the burial places underground, as momentary places of refuge and respite to celebrate the Eucharist with each other. Throughout the church, throughout the, the centuries in communist countries where Christianity has been illegal, the church has always met in opposition to the government. And say, government, you can tell us to do whatever you want to tell us to do. And you can threaten us whatever you want to threaten us with. And you can threaten to take away our 501c3 so we're not taxes. Whatever. If you make me choose, the church has always said, it will always be the way of the kingdom. I just got an email from my friend in Cuba that has been working with our church and our church planning movement for years and years and years. Dear friend. He has family in the United States, got a twin brother that he's been dying to, if God would release him from Cuba to come to the States. I just got an email from him. And we've been supporting him and, and trying to work behind scenes to get him over. Just got an email from him um, just this last week that said he's in Miami. You know how we did it? We snuck him out. We got him to Guyana. And we got a black market loan shark in Guyana to help fund him in his trip over to into Miami. Completely illegal and completely the way of the kingdom. You understand? Just cause something's illegal doesn't mean it's immoral. This is always the way of the kingdom. Justice means liberation. That's always the way of the kingdom. And if you ask me to obey the government or God, we got one response. It is always the way of the kingdom. I think kingdom ministry is a lot of fun. But it isn't always safe. And it isn't always the politically correct thing to do. But it is the way of the kingdom. That's our loyalty. Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand? Let me tell you this. There's a lot of other churches out there that said, well, we'll keep praying for them. Not us. We'll go to the black market for them. We'll go to the loan chart for them. I, I hope our uh, um, INS guys and stuff don't see this message. 
Look at what look at what Jesus says here. Verse 15. Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. They brought the coin and asked them, whose image is this? This is what I love. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if it bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar. You, you, you understand that? If it bears Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar. I love the fact that Jesus used the image of what was on a thing to determine who owned the thing. The image of what was on a thing determines who owns the thing. Why do I love that? Because in Genesis 1.27, the Bible says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What Jesus is saying is if you bear the image of God, you are owned by God. That's the kingdom. Here's the concern. How many of us who claim the name of Christ bear the image of Caesar? Do you understand? And so Jesus dispatches with the Pharisees and the Herodians. He says, you get your loyalty straight. If you bear the image of God, you belong to him. And he takes priority. His kingdom takes priority. But it's unrelenting with Jesus, man. And then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Pay attention to that. Who say there is no resurrection. Then they came to him with a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife uh, but no children then the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So he's saying, if a guy marries a woman and he dies before they have kids to carry on the family line, then his brother has to marry her and fulfill that family line obligation. And that's the scenario. That was the custom. That was the law. The first one married, this is the hypothetical situation. Which, by the way, women, be careful who you marry because you've got to go down this road. <laughs> it could be pretty perilous at times. Uh, so anyway, so the first one married and died without leaving any children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Now let me just pause there for a moment. So you got this guy who marries this girl. He dies without kids. The next brother up. Next eldest marries her. He dies without kids. The next one up marries her. He dies without kids. If I'm number four in line, I'm putting the brakes on right here. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm saying, look, look, hey. Like, this might be true. This might be the culture, like, whatever. But I, I'd rather be a lawbreaker than dead. So I'm, I'm just saying I'm going to choose not to marry this gal. Something, something's up with that. But it goes on for seven of them. Last of all, the woman died too. Now, at the resurrection, this is their question. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, y'all stupid. I mean, he said it in a real Bible way. He said, are you not in error because of one or two things? You either don't know the scriptures or you don't know the power of God. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage They'll be like the angels of heaven. Now, let me just be clear. They don't become, we, when we die, we don't become angels. There, 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 there's, there's no way that we become angels. Angels are a created being. Man is a created being. Man is created a little lower than the angels. We don't become angels. Ain't none of us going to turn into little fat naked babies with wings sitting on a cloud playing harps. We'll be our, our full self in heaven. But we'll be given in marriage. Now about the dead rising, you have not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
Ultimately, what they're asking Jesus is a question of law and God's law over and governing life. The Sadducees, you need to understand about the Sadducees, the Sadducees had no belief in the supernatural. They had no belief in the their Bible looks a lot like probably Thomas Jefferson's. Did you know Thomas Jefferson took the New Testament and the four Gospels and cut out every miraculous thing in the Gospels? And he said, take out all the supernatural. This is Jesus, and that's the only thing you can believe in. That was the Sadducees. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in heaven. Because they were sad, you see? Come on. That's like an old pastor dad joke right there. <laughs> their religious law governed civil life, but they interpreted their religious law in a way that made people slaves to it. In this scenario, this woman, this was a no-win situation for this poor gal. She was at the mercy of religious men that administered a faulty interpretation of strict law over her life. In this scenario, there was no mercy, there was no hope, there was no freedom, there was no liberation, there was no life. I mean, look at this, look at the question. This woman married seven, as was the custom. Each of them died with no kids. Note their words, at the resurrection. What's the problem with that question coming from Sadducees? They believe in the resurrection. Wait, wait, wait. Y'all don't believe in a resurrection? You're going to come at me challenging me with a question about the resurrection? You know what my response would have been? And we can all agree that we're all very thankful that I'm not in the position of Jesus. Because <laughs> my response would have been, are you stupid? But you don't even say that there's a resurrection, so shut up. That's a dumb question. I'm telling you, you are not allowed me to ask me that question unless you want to admit that there is a resurrection. And if you admit that there is a resurrection, then you have to admit that there is a supernatural. And if you admit there's a supernatural, you have to admit there is a heaven and there is a hell. And if you admit there is a heaven and there's a hell, you have to admit you are not headed for heaven. So take your dumb question and you come back to me when you're ready to admit that there is a resurrection and a God of the resurrection. That would have been my response. And again, I think we can all attest to the fact that we're very thankful that I am not in the position of Jesus. I don't think that's such a bad response. But look at Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is this. Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or you don't know the power of God? You've got one of two issues and probably both. He, said, he says, when the dead rise, that settles the issue about the power of God. Now about the rising from the dead. Don't you read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, the, 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 what Jesus says is this. He said, you got one or two problems and probably both. You don't know the Bible. You don't know the power of God. That's the problem. And our problem as we interpret religious law and religious obligation, when we interpret it wrong, it's because we don't know the Bible or we don't know the power of God. And I wonder if God was asked us the same question. Do you know the Bible? 
Do you know the power of God? See, when Jesus addresses the question of the power of God, he goes back to verse 25. And he says these words, when the dead rise. See, the power of God is the resurrection. The kingdom of God is the power of God exhibited, manifested in the world, which is the resurrection. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, I pray that you give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation that I may know you better, that the eyes of my heart be enlightened, that I may know the hope to which you call me, the glorious inheritance that is ours, and the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of God is the resurrection. And some of our problem is that we don't know the power of God to resurrect dead things. We don't know and believe in the power of God to resurrect a dead marriage. The power of the resurrection to resurrect dead hope. The power of the resurrection to resurrect dead joy. The power of the resurrection to resurrect dead genes. The power of the resurrection to resurrect sick bodies and sick spirits. The power of the resurrection to resurrect identities and genders that have been stolen and destroyed because of this culture. Is our, power, is our problem that we don't know the power of God? Or is our problem that we don't know the scriptures? And to address this, Jesus goes back to verse 26. He said, let's go back all the way to the Old Testament. Moses at the burning bush. Centuries after Abraham's death, God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham. When someone dies and we talk about them, we talk about who they were. But when someone is alive, we talk about who they are. If, Mo, if Abraham would have died and been dead and no resurrection, Jesus, God would have said, I was the God of Abraham. But God says, I am the God of Abraham because Abraham is alive because he's in my kingdom and my kingdom is the power of the resurrection. See, the kingdom of God is living with the power of God in our life to resurrect dead things. Do you know the power of God and the scriptures? And it just remains unrelenting as the people approach Jesus. One of the teachers of the law, this was the scribes, he came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbors yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher. Can you imagine giving Jesus a compliment for quoting the Bible right? <laughs> Jesus is like, okay, thanks for the compliment. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus heard that he said that, that he had answered wisely, he said to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting close. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I'd love to get to that point in my life when no one dares ask me more questions. <laughs> this is a question of love. Though they're talking about religious law, they're really talking about loves. And this is the paramount question surrounding us and the kingdom of God. Our loves. 
the scribes were mainly concerned with the interpretation of religious law. And they want to know what's the most important law. See, Judaism up to this point had developed 613 laws, 365 negative laws, 248 positive laws, 365, one for every day. When you woke up, you knew there was something you weren't supposed to do that day. Can you imagine living under that pressure? Every day you wake up, you better not. Every day. And 248 positive ones, you better, 248, because that's how many they believed at that time bones were in the body. So your life revolved around how well you could obey every one of those laws every day. So then Isaiah came around and took those 613 and limited them to six in Isaiah 33. And then Micah came around and limited, took those six and down to three in Micah 5.8. And then Amos came around, took those three and boiled it down to one in Amos 5.4. And so the question on the scribe's mind, they were very concerned with this issue, as is most of us in this place, which are we obligated to obey? That's their question. Which of the laws am I obligated to obey? Which ones can I get away with and kind of fudge on? And what is my obligation? That's the same question that you and I ask every single day, isn't it? Because we want to know. Okay, now, is what I did last night, was that like, or was that one of the bad ones I shouldn't? We all want to know. So Jesus says this. He says, I know y'all talking about law and religion, but here's what you're really, you're really talking about love. Jesus says, what's behind religion must be love, not obligation. What's behind our religion must be love, not obligation. It's grace, not law. See, the way we are to interpret the law of God is through the lens of love. The way we're to interpret the law of God is through the lens of love. The kingdom of God appears when we love God first and then show our love for him by how we love others. That's when the kingdom of God appears. Love is always the lens through which we interpret law. But let me be very clear. Love is not the acceptance of every agenda. Love is the exhibition of God's agenda. Do not be fooled by culture and society that says love is love. It doesn't matter what the behavior, as long as it's love, that is false. Love is not the acceptance of every agenda, nor the ally of every agenda. Love is the exhibition of God's agenda. And the exhibition of God's agenda is the kingdom of God in our midst. Jesus, in a series of interactions with those who are opposed to him both religiously and politically, reveals the kingdom's priority over all things, all kingdoms, and all agendas. To the Pharisees, Jesus exhibited God's agenda over their agenda. To the Herodians, Jesus exhibited God's priority over their agenda. To the Sadducees, Jesus exhibited God's priority in the kingdom of the priority of the kingdom over their agenda. To the scribes, Jesus exhibited 
the priority of the kingdom of God over all other agendas. See, the kingdom of God is love that's shown us again justice to the oppressed and the freedom from those enslaved. The kingdom of God is love that is shown in the healing of spiritual, physical, and emotional ills. The kingdom of God is love shown in the invitation of those on our huddle both to Jesus and into the kingdom. The kingdom of God must be the priority for the citizens of the kingdom. At the end of chapter 12, there's a little story about this little widow who had like half a cent left to her name. And she goes to the church service and she puts it in the offering. And all these other big wids with, you know, all these sneaker preachers show up with their wads of cash and they throw money in. And Jesus says, this little lady put in more than anybody else. Because she gave all she had. Why? Because the kingdom was the price. The others gave a portion and a contribution. She gave all. Because of the priority of the kingdom over all other agendas in her life. Kingdom of God. That's the way of the kingdom. It's always been that way and it must always be that way. Let me wrap up with this. Have any of you ever been to a U.S. embassy on foreign soil? Y'all need to get out more. I just travel. I've been to a few for a lot of different reasons. Let me put it to let me put the kingdom of God to you in terms of, of, of a U.S. embassy. When there's a U.S. embassy in foreign land, even enemy land of our enemies, enemies of the United States, we have embassies on their foreign territory, their foreign country. It's going on in Afghanistan right now. We have an embassy in foreign land. When a United States citizen, a citizen of the kingdom, is in that embassy, even though the embassy is on foreign hostile territory, guess whose laws exist abide by inside the walls of that embassy? I'm going to give you one answer. The U.S. of A's laws abide. And abound inside the walls of that embassy, even though that embassy is on foreign, hostile territory. It's an amazing thing that happens all over the world. Anywhere there's a U.S. embassy, even on foreign, hostile territory, a United States citizen walks into that embassy and U.S. law applies. The rest of the law of the land can't touch them. It's a little bit of home, a long way from home. And such is the kingdom of God. We live in this world, and this world is foreign territory. This land is enemy country. It's a kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. And every agenda and every priority is set up in opposition to the kingdom of God. And that's fine. Because as kingdom people who belong to the kingdom of God, every time the church moves according to the kingdom of God, we set up an embassy. And inside the walls of the embassy of the kingdom of God, the laws of the kingdom of the foreign country cannot prevail. (laughs) I miss preaching the last two weeks.
Church, when we live as the kingdom, we then live in the kingdom. And for far too long, there have been too many of us, me, living in a foot in both kingdoms. And there are times when I know that I'm part of the kingdom, and I'm li- but there are other times. <laughs> and that's why I have been so torn at times in my life and so imbalanced and unstable. Because part of my life was ruled by the laws of an enemy territory and other part was ruled by the laws of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God must have priority over all other kingdoms and all other to step into the embassy. And as we hold the kingdom of God as priority, even while in foreign territory, of the world's kingdom, we begin to see and experience the kingdom of God in our midst. And it is beautiful. Now, one last thing, pay attention. In all of this stuff, and here's what happens, see? The kingdom of this world and all these other just they have one priority. It's to get us distracted. To mesmerize us. I love the fact that through all of this unrelenting pressure, that was coming against you, all these agendas, all this kingdom, all this stuff. Jesus never got sidetracked by other kingdoms nor agendas. He was resolute. He didn't turn to the right nor to the left. He said the kingdom of God must be and always will be the priority. And as I look at Mark 12, what I want to remind us is one thing. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get sidetracked. Everything in life is designed to sidetrack the people, the citizens of the kingdom of God away from the kingdom. I'm telling you, every agenda on social media, every agenda in the public school, every force and move in your life is designed by the kingdom of the evil one to distract you and sidetrack you from the kingdom of God. Don't get sidetracked. This is the way of the kingdom. You know when you're sidetracked from the kingdom of God because you're sidetracked into other kingdoms. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his rights and all this other stuff that you need will be given to you as well. Don't get sidetracked. Every person in our huddle needs to see and experience the kingdom of God. They need to see the prior of the kingdom over all our other loyalties. They need to see the prior of the kingdom over all other laws, religious and civil. They need to see the prior of the kingdom over all other loves. And I'm telling you that as we live this way, our prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come. As we live this way, our prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come on earth. Our prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already exists and is done, will come to fruition. God, all we want is your kingdom to come. That's my prayer, Father. All we want is your kingdom to come. All we desire 
is your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth in our midst as it already is done, as it already exists in heaven. Father, you have called us into relationship with your son. And in that relationship, you've called us into the kingdom. Oh God, would you forgive us for living both inside and outside the embassy? Would you forgive us for having feet in both worlds, in both kingdoms? It's no wonder that we have been so distracted and confused and under stress and turmoil and sick and depressive because we've lived as if we're citizens of both kingdoms and we cannot be. Oh God, would you in this moment call us back into your kingdom? God, you've made it so easy for us to love you. You loved us first. You've made it so easy for us to love you. God, will we step back into your kingdom to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love others in place of ourselves. Would you call us back into your kingdom? Father, some of us have been distracted for far too long by the culture and by society, by other loves and agendas. Some of us have been so wrapped up in social media crap in past hurts of family and friends, of the chasing after wealth. We've been so wrapped up in the other kingdom, God, that we, I'm gonna invite you to step into the kingdom of God. Father, there are some people in this place right now that are realizing the duality of their own nature. That are realizing the duality of their own spiritual life. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you be very clear right now with us and cause us to crucify the old self and cause us to leave behind what is behind and to strip off every sin that entangles us and press forward to the goal of the upper call of Christ. Jesus, as you set your face resolutely for the cross, for the joy that would come, Father, when we set our face resolutely to your kingdom, resurrect dead things. As we choose to live in your kingdom, resurrect dead marriages, resurrect dead relationships, resurrect dead children that we've lost to the enemy, let them come back. Father, resurrect dead bodies. Resurrect dead hope and dead joy. Oh God, may your kingdom come.